Coming up next on Stark Talk Special Edition, we've got Max Lugavere, who's a health and wellness journalist and an expert on all manner of connectivity between the food we eat, the body we get as a result of it, and what effect it has on our mind. Right on up through dementia. Is ultra-processed food a force operating against us? Check it out. Welcome to Star Talk, your place in the universe where science and pop culture collide. Star Talk begins right now. This is Star Talk Special Edition. Neil deGrasse Tyson here, your personal astrophysicist. Chuck, how you doing, man? Hey, Neil, what's happening? All right, Chuck, professional comedian and actor, and of course, uh, Gary O'Reilly. Gary, former soccer pro. Hey. And always good to have you. So, what yeah. what have you what have you and your producers, fellow producers, cooked up for this episode? Uh, it all starts tragically, but not too tragically, I hope. But with a family illness, and our guests put their media life on hold and went in search of answers. So here we have curiosity. Years of investigative research led to the New York Times instant bestseller, Genius Foods. That was followed by Genius Life and third book, Genius Kitchen. Let's meet our guest, a podcaster, a filmmaker, author, and wellness journalist, plus a TEDx speaker. And probably in a minute, we'll find out much, much more. Neil, Max Lugavere. Max, welcome to Star Talk. Hi, Neil. Big fan. Thank you so much for having me. Good. So do I, do I trust Gary's pronunciation of your last name? <laughs> yeah, he did it. He did a fantastic job, and that's how I've been hearing it. Actually, I was in London for uh, a week, and a week just uh, just up until two weeks ago, and it was really fun being there for the first time. And shockingly, I discovered this is very new research that um, Alzheimer's disease and dementia is now the UK's number one cause of death. So I was there talking about the role of nutrition, brain health, and it was. Um, I mean, it was my first time getting to explore London. It was a blast. You have a good time? I did have a good time. Uh, you know, as, as yeah. I mentioned first, it's yeah, a great city. fantastic city, um, great food, which uh, I wasn't quite expecting. Not known for that. Yeah. Not known for that. <laughs> it, it, it didn't used to be. <laughs> there, there's, no, there, there's no restaurants in town. They say, British cuisine. <laughs> Those two it, words exactly. you never see together. Yeah, that means mashed potatoes, sausages, <laughs> Fish and chips, <laughs> yeah. baked beans, right. and then you're, you're done. You're kind of you're kind of done there. So, so Max, uh, this this portfolio of expertise, um, uh, did you, you do you come to it through your roots as a as a health journalist, a wellness journalist? Yeah. So I, um, I I always like to be very clear up front. I'm not a medical doctor. I didn't go through the the traditional academic channels. I started my career as a generalist journalist. I worked for Al Gore for six years for a TV network called Current TV. And then my mother got sick at a very young age, and I became obsessed with trying to understand everything I possibly could about the role of diet and lifestyle in brain health, as well as mental health. And um, I've published a lot of literature, as you, you know, have mentioned, um, three books on the topic, exploring the intersection between our diets and our lifestyles, and disease outcomes, brain health, um, et cetera, et cetera, but, um, which obviously are geared towards, towards lay audiences. But I've also had the uh, privilege of getting to co-author academic work. So I, I got to co-author a chapter in a textbook um, geared to clinicians in a handbook on the neuropsychology of aging and dementia on the clinical practice of, uh, of dementia prevention. 
And then I also have gotten to work for Medscape, which is the largest publication reaching doctors all around the world. So yeah, medical health and science journalist is sort of my my professional title, but um, but I create content. I have a podcast. I you know go on television to again to lay audiences and um, and I'm largely an autodidact. But despite that, I've I've gotten to do really incredible stuff. I lecture around the world on this topic, and it's a uh, it's fun. But the reason why I got into it is because again, at a young age, my mom got sick. And so that is my my why. And she passed away four years ago. But trying to understand why she developed this rare, the rare form of dementia that she had, um, has become really my life's purpose. Mm. And so, and you, so you have, so you like the word genius because it's in three of your books, uh, gene, genius, and the podcast, and your podcast, a genius life. So no one doesn't want to be a genius. So that's quite the magnetic draw. For potential audiences out there, so so let's start out by asking. Uh, I guess you would say there's some foods that are good for the brain, and some foods that are not. Uh, now I'm going to take the very naive view: the foods I like for my brain are the ones that taste good. That's because <laughs> <laughs> then I'm happy, and my brain and my mind. If I'm happy, I'm happy, right? So if so I have a I have French fries or kale. When I'm done <laughs> eating the French fries. I am happier than when I eat the bowl of kale. Mm. So, but I'm betting that's not the kind of thing you're talking about. Yeah. Well, first off, I do want to address the the, the genius aspect of the you know titling nomenclature that I've used, and and part of the reason why I chose that is not to say that I'm a genius and that I have some profound secret insights to offer. Um, although I do like to think that at times, it's really that I wanted to create the ultimate sort of nutritional care manual for the brain, the ulti- ultimate dementia prevention roadmap. But I realized that young people wouldn't be interested in such a topic. And one of the most startling insights that I discovered when I when I set foot on this journey was that dementia often begins in the brain decades before the first symptom, 30 to 40 years prior to the first symptom. So in my estimation, this is very much like a millennial topic that we needed to be talking about. And so I started looking at food. I'm, I've always been a big nutrition junkie. And so with regard to your, uh, your dilemma, your French fry <laughs> and, and, and kale dilemma, yeah, French fries are generally speaking, well, there's a continuum. Like food isn't necessarily food, right? Like fat isn't fat, protein isn't protein. And French fries can be made really healthily if you're using an air fryer or if you're using, right. if you're using a type of yeah. fat that is chemically... Or if you use the spinach. Yeah, if you're using spinach to what to fry your to make your French fries. Yeah, <laughs> there you go. No, I'm talking about authentic, original McDonald's lard fried, no lard fried French fries. Come go on, on now. yeah. I mean, unfortunately, McDonald's today they're not frying their French fries in lard. I would be somewhat, I think, more amenable to French fries fried in lard because instead, what they use are these ultra-processed, refined, bleached, and deodorized seed oils, which oftentimes are sitting in the fryers for days. Now, these oils, if quote-unquote fresh, they're never actually fresh because they're so highly refined and processed. But just for all intents and purposes, if they were changing these these fryers regularly, we'd have less of an issue. But unfortunately, when these oils are held at temperature, they generate really... um, Nasty compounds like certain aldehydes, which we know are potentially mutagenic, can damage the um, energy-producing mitochondria in our cells. Um, and they create trans fats, which we know there's no safe level of trans fat consumption. Right. And so I think that's you know 
combined with the fact that French fries tend to be hyper palatable, they they imbue this characteristic that food scientists refer to as hyper palatability. They're almost impossible to moderate our consumption of of those foods. I think that's really where the the problem tends to lie. But you can make French fries at home using, you know, tallow or, you know, if you wanted lard. I mean, my personal favorite, and I think probably the healthiest choice would be an unsaturated fat, like, you know, avocado oil or extra virgin olive oil. Extra Um, virgin French fries are amazing. Yeah. My my 10-year-old makes them in the air frying toaster oven that we have. And And by the way, the same way you can make the French fries, all you got to do is slice those same potatoes very thinly, and in the exact same way, you can make your potato own chips. fresh potato chips, baby. Potato I will chips. never buy another bag of potato chips again. <laughs> oh, oh. Lot, you're lying. <laughs> um, Max, what are the genius foods? Because there's got to be like a police lineup of the good guys and the bad guys. So let's hit the good guys. Yeah, right? absolutely. So when I started looking into the literature, I really wanted to, rather than like, come out of the gate with the foods that people ought to be avoiding, which can be really overwhelming. And I think kind of it's a, that's a pretty common trope in the, in the diet industry. You know, mm, diet culture this. Yeah, tends to really love to vilify foods. The genius foods are the foods that you should actually adopt and embrace and consume more of. And so these are foods like avocados, which, um, you know, living in California, I'm kind of preaching to the choir, but generally avocados are an incredible brain food because of their, uh, abundance of fat-protecting antioxidants like vitamin E and carotenoids like lutein and zeaxanthin, which we've known for decades can help protect the eyes against age-related macular degeneration. We now know that these same compounds actually accumulate in the brain where they protect the brain from oxidative stress. They boost uh, something called neural efficiency, meaning suggesting that your brain might actually, if we consume more of these, work less hard to achieve the same tasks. They also can boost visual processing speed, according to research um, out of the University of Georgia. So avocados are are tremendous. I'm also a huge fan of eggs. You know, eggs, no pun intended, have taken a beating over the past couple of decades. (laughs) (laughs) We Uh, saw what you did there. Uh, (laughs) Uh Um, He's here all week. He's here all week. I'm here all week. Yeah, but, but but the egg yolk is literally uh, um, one of nature's multivitamins. It contains a little bit of everything required to grow and sustain a healthy brain. I mean, it's no wonder that egg yolks contain cholesterol, which has been the vilified nutrient in question for, you know, since probably the 1970s. The brain is made of cholesterol. 25% of the of total body cholesterol is housed in the brain, which accounts only for 2 to 3% of your body's mass. Now, I'm not saying you need to consume cholesterol for brain health. Your brain produces all the cholesterol that it needs in a process called de novo cholesterol synthesis. But all that is to say, it's no wonder that egg yolks contain an abundance of cholesterol because it's there to help grow a brain. So eggs are amazing. It, they contain choline, which we see in older um, men. There was a study that found that even if you were genetically at risk for developing Alzheimer's disease, the highest level of choline intake was associated with a 30% risk reduction for the development of Alzheimer's disease. So eggs are tremendous. I'm also- Wait, so, so if you're rich, will, will caviar work as a substitute for oh. eggs? Oh, ooh. <laughs> yeah, I like this. I actually like this question because caviar provides a form of docosahexaenoic acid, aka DHA fat, which is one of the most- New word alert. Yeah, new word alert. <laughs> there you go. That was a getting my learning how to pronounce that accurately. Um, that took he was showing again. off there. He was showing off. Decosahexa what? Enoic acid. So enoic acid. Enoic, yeah. You mm. know it. Yeah, so, that's it. 
Um, so yeah, DHA fat, it's one of the most important structural building blocks of the brain. We, we typically don't consume uh, enough of it in the context of the standard American diet. And uh, fish eggs, like caviar and, and um, salmon roe, ikura, in uh, Japanese mm-hmm. restaurants, is actually a wonderful source of DHA fat. And in particular, it's a source of DHA fat in what's called a phospholipid format, which is like plug and play to the brain. It just gets sucked up by, by the brain and integrated mm-hmm. into cellular membrane. So it's a great I've heard of DHA fat in uh, certain kinds of cold water fish too. Is that the case? Yeah, exactly. Yes, so wild is, salmon, right? sardines, mackerel, great source of DHA fat. Right. right. Now, a lot, you know, people will look to, pl- especially today, there's this like this push towards plant-based diets, which I think is, you know, if you, if you choose to be on a plant-based diet, by all means do it. I just, you know, aspire so that I, I hope that people have the full breadth of information before making a choice like that. A lot of people will look to like flaxseed oil or chia seeds for their omega-3s, but men in particular are very poor at converting plant-based forms of omega-3s to their usable form in the body, which is, you know, one one of those uh, important omega-3 fatty acids, it's DHA fat. So I prefer to get it from fish, Chuck. I don't blame you. Wait, 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 just that, wait, just back up for a sec. So you make a point, but I don't want to, I don't want you to just skip by it. You recognize that just because you eat a molecule doesn't mean that molecule retains its molecular form and then gets used by the body in that state. There's a lot of molecules we eat that we decompose and reassemble according to the body's needs. So just because you know a chemical is used in the brain, why should consuming that chemical chemical automatically mean it lands in your brain to do just what you think it should. Yeah, you're absolutely right. I mean, we should we shouldn't assume that. I mean, so DHA fat, you can get it in there are multiple forms that DHA fat uh appears in the diet. So typically you we ingest it in its triglyceride form. That's how it's found in fish. But then krill oil, um, salmon roe, for example, have it in the phospholipid form, which is thought to be more bioavailable to the brain. And a lot of people on plant-based diets will look to alpha-linolenic acid, or ALA, which is a, a plant-based form of omega-3s, assuming that we all transform this plant-based compound to its usable form in the body. But that's actually um, not correct thinking because we all are different and we all vary in our capacity to transform mm-hmm. that compound to its usable form in the body. There are enzymes like the delta-5 desaturase enzyme and there are minerals that are rate-limiting in this process. So, you know, in the nutrient-deficient standard American diet, I mean, it's just it's leaving a lot to chance. And where our brains are concerned, that's not something that you want to leave to chance. You want to make sure that you are... I mean, essentially what I call the set it and forget it method. You want to in, in make sure that you're ingesting preformed DHA fat, preformed EPA fat. People of different genetic backgrounds, people with different genders, for example, like men are worse at this than women. Women are about 10 times more effective at converting ALA to DHA, which is thought to be a, an adaptation to support child um, rearing. And so, yeah, you're absolutely right, Neil. We, we can't just like, you know, we don't want, we want to take the guesswork out of this. Nutrition is far too important. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you, like FedEx 
who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the US on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx. Whether you're a family vacation traveler, business tripper, or long weekend adventurer, Choice Hotels has a stay for any you. And that's good, because there are a lot of me's. Choice Hotels has over 7,400 locations and 22 brands, including Comfort Hotels, Radisson Hotels, and Cambria Hotels. Get the best value for your money when you book with Choice Hotels. Cambria Hotels feature locally inspired hotel bars with specialty cocktails and downtown locations in the center of it all. Hey, that's me. Radisson Hotels have flexible workspaces to get the most of your business travel and on-site restaurants. That's me, too. And at Comfort Hotels, you'll enjoy free hot breakfast with fresh waffles, great pools for the entire family, and spacious rooms. Hey, that's me, too. I guess I'm just going to have to stay at all of them. Choice Hotels has a stay for any you. Book direct at choicehotels.com, where travel comes true. So what evidence do you have that your mother's condition, which launched you on this quest to associate food and nutrition with brain health, what evidence do you have that had she eaten differently, for example, that her condition might have been delayed or ameliorated entirely? Like, is there, because you can't just load people up and do brain experiments on them, right? This is, this is unethical. Not, not yet, but... (laughs) But let's come on now. No, well, we're, we we st- are starting to see, first of all, that rates of Alzheimer's and dementia are increasing across increasing. across different age groups. So this is not just mm-hmm. the oldest old. This is not just a function okay. of the fact that we are living longer. In fact, we're actually dying longer. We're spending more of our years with disabilities Ooh. saddled by by chronic disease. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But then you see that the standard. Well, first of all, actually, so there's there's a lot of ways to approach this, and I think it's a fantastic question. So one of the most well-defined Alzheimer's risk genes is called the APOE4 allele. And we carry about one in four of us carry it here in the United States, right? And in the United States, that carrying, whether you carry one or two copies, increases your risk anywhere between two and 14 fold. Um, it was recently revealed that Chris Hemsworth, for example, on on uh, a show that he did, um, carries two copies, right? So that's a dramatic, you know, risk um, increase. But risk is correlation, and these studies to ascertain the degree of risk increase are all performed here in the United States. If you were to look to another part of the world, where, say, EBITDA, Nigeria, where they've done this, they see the same. Uh, gene frequency. So again, roughly one in four people carry the gene there, but there it has little to no association with Alzheimer's disease. So essentially that gene 
increases your risk in the context of the standard American diet, right? But if you were to simply move yourself to another part of the world, a part of the world, say, where the food supply is less industrialized, where you know there tends to be tighter social connections, where people tend to be more active, less sedentary, less exposed to environmental pollutants, etc., you might see that risk abolished. So genes are not destined. So what, what you're saying is risk doesn't necessitate outcome. Exactly. So the potential for the outcome is to be there, but what we know environmentally is as we make environmental associations associated with that risk, we see a decline in other areas where they don't have the hazards of diet that we experience here in the United States. Yeah, exactly. This is the concept known as epigenetics. So you might, you know, we all, you might carry, uh, think of your genes like the keys on a grand piano. And you might have within your genome the keys required to play the song Alzheimer's disease, right? But if you live and eat in a certain way, and we don't have all the details in terms of like how this might, you know, the, the, the exact roadmap for guaranteed prevention. So we talk in terms of reducing risk, right? But you might live in a certain way where those keys never get played. On the other hand, if you consume largely the, you know, a diet representative of the standard American diet, whereby now 60% of your average American's calories are coming from ultra-processed foods, those keys are likely getting played. Then you add in environmental exposures. You add in an overly sedentary lifestyle. You add an exposure, for example, to cigarette smoke or chronic alcohol consumption or traumatic, uh, you know, like, or even non-traumatic head injury. Um, then you're... Well, that's it. I'm dead. <laughs> yep. <laughs> you're, you're dramatically increasing your risk. Again, and context is everything. Now, my mother, I will never know what caused her dementia, unfortunately. But, you know, my mom was somebody who, who, who adhered to what any dietitian of the 70s and 80s would have described as a perfect diet. It was very low in fat, low in saturated fat, low in dietary cholesterol. I never saw her eat eggs, red meat, anything like that. Foods that we know are highly nutrient dense. And instead, she consumed mainly ultra processed foods, but the kinds of foods that you might see the Red Heart Healthy logo on in the supermarket. In the, in the supermarket, if it had the Red Heart Healthy logo on it, chances are it would have passed through my you know, kitchen at some point or another growing up. We consumed margarine instead of butter. We always had the, you know, the, the, the bottle of corn oil by the stove and the plastic tub, which now research is beginning to show us um, are not healthy alternatives. Um, despite their despite their marketing, she always you know ate refined grain products, but again that were low in, in cholesterol and saturated fat, were purportedly heart healthy, and unfortunately that's the dietary pattern that that my mom you know adhered to. And I, I don't even know to be honest if it was her diet. You know she was also not she was of a generation um, where where physical exercise wasn't really appreciated the way that it is now. I mean you know for for her adolescence like the the. The, the the gym membership wasn't a thing the way that it is now. So I don't think, I don't know if they... Uh, there were no gyms. There yeah, were no gyms. Right, right. Yeah, right. so not that, you, not that you need a gym to exercise, but, um, but you know, mm-hmm. it's, uh, her, her lifestyle was, was very different and she aspired to be healthy. That's the grand irony of it all is that my mom was somebody who, you know, she was born and raised in New York City and had access to healthful food. Um, she didn't come from money or anything like that, but she aspired her whole life to be to be healthy and despite that develop these awful monstrosities um these these awful health monstrosities so um yeah. what, what is nutritional psychiatry yes so great question Nut- nutritional psychiatry is this burgeoning field looking at the role of diet 
in mental health. So we're seeing mental health disorders uh, increase. We're seeing um, even non-clinically people struggling around the world with depression and anxiety. And so we are now, there's now starting to, uh, we're, we're starting to develop a growing body of evidence showing us not just associations, right? Not just, not just correlation where people who consume more junk food tend to be at higher risk of depression or people who adhere more closely to vegan diets tend to be at higher risk of depression. But we are now starting uh, randomized control trials. The kinds of trials required to prove cause and effect are starting to show us that food is medicine with regard to mental health. So one of the, um, one of the, uh, seminal studies came out of the Deakin, uh, Deakin University's Food and Mood Center in Australia called the SMILES trial, where they took people... Food and, food and mood. The food and mood, yeah. Mm. Clever. All right. Right? I love this. The, yeah. the SMILES trial. That's where they give you Neil's French fries. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah, those patients were eating lots of French fries. And, many, Ooh, there you and, go. and they had clinical depression. And after cleaning up their diets and giving them uh, you know, a dietary pattern similar to the one that I recommend, you know, a Mediterranean whole foods dietary pattern inclusive of animal products, um, and and with a reduced focus on ultra processed, what I call vending machine foods, they saw that three times the pa- in, compared to standard of patients on the standard of care intervention, there was a, a dramatic um, rate of remission and just symptom improvement across the board. So we can actually use food as medicine now with regard to mental health, which is amazing. And that so now with with, with that match, let me interrupt you because right now I'm sure there are some people who are getting the impression, not that you're giving it that perhaps what you're saying is that this is the preferred method of treatment as opposed to the standard of care that is now given to those who suffer these maladies. Is that indeed what you were saying? Or are you just saying this is the uh, best means of preventing ever getting to that place in the first place. Yeah, it's both. And all and to be clear, I'm not, you know, my intent is not to place stigma on pharmaceutical intervention. The, the drugs do work for a subset of depressed patients, but you know, they tend to be more effective the more severe the depression. But my argument and I think the 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 growing argument now is that food and lifestyle should be a frontline defense. And if if that doesn't work for you then, you know, by all means see a psychiatrist and 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 you know and have them work out something that's effective for you. Did you did you hear about the doctor who prescribed because uh, people were living in a food desert and he was seeing all of these uh, illnesses that he basically was just like these are lifestyle illnesses, and he started prescribing like vegetables and things like that. He was basically saying exactly what you're saying. It was a medical doctor, you know. And that, that's not to say that all depressed people that the etiology of their depression the is is rooted in their in their choices. That's not what I'm saying. But for certainly a subset of patients with depression, there is a role for diet and lifestyle, and it could potentially be driven by. Poor food choices because we're now there's what's called the um, inflammatory cytokine model of depression. Now this oh, wow. this doesn't apply to all depressed patients, but for some, inflammation in the body can drive symptoms of depression. A sick animal, for example, an animal under inflammatory assault with an infection, for example, they display what are known as sickness behaviors. You ask any zookeeper, right? Like what, how their animals behave when they're sick. They retract from the herd. They display, they display symptoms that in a human look a lot like depression. So 
today, unfortunately, a lot of people are exposed to inflammatory environmental top pollutants. Um, they eat diets that contribute to inflammation, ultra processed, highly refined diets. They're, you know, they experience, um, they have perhaps energy toxicity because they're just eating too much in general. And so that can create inflammation in the body. And the brain sits directly downwind of that inflammatory smoke, if you will. And so for those patients, it, it doesn't take a stretch of the imagination to, to hypothesize that maybe cleaning up their diets and 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 getting to a state of nutrient repletion and exercising a little bit more, which we know has an anti-inflammatory effect, um, can can help. And so, you know, why not try that first before you know getting onto one of these drugs, which have side effects and are very difficult to come off of, right? I think you owe it to yourself. And again, but, but I'm Max. Not- but Max, so I'm a I'm a physics reductionist, right? So, so you could chew on the bark of this magic tree, or you can isolate what is the pain reliever in it, and you get aspirin. So you just take a pill rather than bow and to a tree and chew on its bark. So if everything you mention that is good for the brain, and you're citing a food in which it's found, why not just put it in a pill, and then everybody takes the pill, and then we can eat what the hell we want. Or, or avoid the things that you know are bad, but we don't always have to chase the things that have been declared good if you can reduce it to something that would fit in a pill. What's wrong with that? Yeah, that, that's a great question. And in the field of nutrition, that's referred to as nutritionism. This idea that, you know, humans that we, you know, with our, especially in the field of nutrition, meager tools, just distill a food down to its constituent nutrients. Like, we look at an orange and we think vitamin C, right? But an orange is composed of hundreds, if not thousands of chemicals, right? And food has what's called an entourage effect. And when we take these isolated nutrients and we give them as supplement form in clinical trials, they don't always have the expected effect. Food, we've co-evolved with food, not these nutrients in isolation. That, that makes sense. It's like what, what you're saying is that um, when, you, when you eat an orange, you are getting the vitamin C, ascorbic acid, which you can find in a pill, but you're also getting collagen. You're also getting every other thing that, that an orange does for you, and you can't get that in the pill. So maybe the pill is good to undergird a certain part of your nutritional health, but if you make that the you essential mean to focus... You mean to supplement. supplement. Yeah, yeah, okay. Yes, mm-hmm. but, 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 to, but to make that the, the focus probably won't work. Yeah, and that's one of my biggest, one of the biggest arguments that I have to make against veganism. Again, I'm not uh, against Uh-oh. somebody. Wait a minute, I gotta go. <laughs> I gotta go fired. to the bathroom, guys. I gotta go to the bathroom. He's talking about vegans. That, are you, We're about to be under attack. Oh, no. Watch out. Everybody duck. <laughs> duck. Okay. Everybody duck. Watch out. Yeah. So I. So I. You know. I don't. Um, people. People can. I don't care what people eat. I think that they should be, adopt whatever diet they want with full informed consent and the full breadth of information before they make those choices. But you know, they've they've distilled an entire massive category of foods, animal source products, right? That we've co-evolved with. There's no single vegan hunter gatherer tribe on the planet and meat played, you know, the best scientists that I know believe that meat played an integral role in the evolution of the human brain. But 
But there's this idea that you can distill the entire category of animal source foods down to one nutrient, vitamin B12. And if, as long as you supplement with that, then you're good, right? You can, you can X out animal products and, and, and cross them off from your, from your shopping list. And that's a big problem because we know that animal source foods have a ton of really beneficial nutrients that we are now just starting to identify. For example, it was just recently shown in in both primate and mouse uh, models, that taurine, which is a, a, an amino acid found only in animal products, right, can actually extend lifespan. It set the internet ablaze. You know, everybody's looking for the new, for the next fountain of youth. And taurine is this compound that in clinical trials in humans has been shown to reduce blood pressure, improve glucose homeostasis, like glucose regulation, and might even actually play a role in extending your lifespan. Now, the dose in humans for that effect is unclear. Um, but, you know, animal source products are loaded with nutrients that seem to improve the way that our biologies function, right? Creatine found in, in meat, carnitine. Um, and so this, this whole idea of like nutritionism, reducing foods down to its constituent nutrients and trying to identify with all of our hubris what is essential and what's not, well, that would only leave us with vitamin B12, which is a huge mistake in my view. Well, all I know is as a comedian... Uh, touring will kill you. <laughs> no, <laughs> but I'm <laughs> okay. exactly. Thank you for the thank you for the rim shot because okay. that deserved it. Yeah, that's some we'll, we'll be the judge of what now. deserves a rim shot here. Max, are you saying the human body is predisposed to need certain animal products, be it egg, be it dairy, be it meat, fish, protein, in, in a certain format rather than? Yes. Um, okay. Yes. But omnivory is our biologically appropriate uh, way of eating. Um, you can you can try to get around it with a by playing a cat and mouse game of of nutrients, uh, but pretty much your teeth. Your teeth make that point for you, Max. Let's be honest. There's a reason why we have canines, okay? And, and, Interesting and, point. Know, right. And it ain't yeah. to eat apples. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. So, yeah, I'm a, I'm a huge uh, proponent of, of omnivory. I think it's like, you know, and it's a very balanced approach, I think. But today, nothing is balanced. Everything has become polarized. And so there's, you know, there's the vegan diet tribe and there's now the growing carnivore diet tribe. And by sitting in the middle, you get haters on both sides, which can be uh, frustrating mm -hmm. at times. But, um, but yeah, I'm unapologetic in my, in my, in my stance. We know what to eat. We know how it works. Is it now about food strategy for how we eat? Do we binge? Do we graze? Do we fast? Do we just get a jab of Ozempic? What are we doing? How are we going about this? Oh, 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 Yeah, um, that's a great question. I think it's what, what you eat is still more important than how you eat, when you eat. Okay. But these are all variables that are starting to be looked at. Um, you know, Sachin Panda, for example, at the Salk Institute is a circadian biologist who's done a lot of great work showing us how early time-restricted eating, um, mm -hmm. meaning curtailing your food consumption to uh, about you know three to four hours before you go to sleep, actually can lead to improvements in certain markers of cardiometabolic health, such as blood pressure and blood sugar, 
We also... Let, let, let me just, we should unpack that for a second because you said a lot there, Max. <laughs> and basically, you know, you're saying that basically everybody has a, a 24-hour rhythm to their body and their metabolism. Mm-hmm. And so that if you restrict your, uh, your intake to a few hours or cut it off a few hours before you go to bed, you can see metabolic uh, benefits to doing so. Uh, in, in terms of like your heart and so forth, is that yeah? Right? Without even without ch- even changing what it is that you're eating, which I think is really empowering for people in food deserts, people who can't easily change what it is that they're eating, you know. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, so what the research is showing is that first of all, your average American is eating is digesting and metabolizing calories from the moment they wake up until the moment just before they go to sleep, right? And that seems to be out of sync with our natural circadian yearnings to, for for one, be diurnal creatures, which we are. So we're meant to eat primarily during the day and not too close to, to bedtime. And studies show, for example, that eating late at night actually affects your next day hunger rhythms. So for anybody trying to lose a little bit of weight, eating late at night might be, in a way, causing your efforts to backfire. They've shown that um, this negatively affects next day energy metabolism. It increases hunger and decreases your metabolic rate, not by huge margins, but by margins that, you know, if if regularly um, occurring and sustained might uh, presumably lead to lead to weight gain. Um, blood pressure is a hypertension is a major problem. About fifty percent, so one in two mm-hmm. people listening to this have hypertension, which literally I, I'm the one. They, <laughs> You're the one in two people. There's, there's four of I'm us. The one in two. Okay. There's four of us. Yeah, it's mm-hmm. a. I mean, this is a big problem. I mean, it's not just the silent killer, but chronically sustained hypertension literally destroys your brain. I mean, this was shown in, an, in a seminal dementia prevention trial that, that I often reference, the Sprint Mind trial, where they showed that people who were aggressively treated for their hypertension saw a significant risk reduction for the development of mild cognitive impairment, which is considered pre-dementia. So we know that you know, your, your brain is fed blood and nutrients and antioxidants, um, oxygen, glucose, by a network of microvessels and you know you might not experience a stroke but vascular dementia is the second most common form of dementia and even in alzheimer's disease there's there's early vascular dysfunction so mind you max if i think back to my younger days and certain maxims all right an apple a day keeps the doctor away but eat your greens mm. don't go to bed on a full stomach we've kind of known these things you know and had them absorbed whether we paid attention to them or not good point yeah, but unfortunately today there's massive pressure from whether it is the pharmaceutical industry, as you mentioned, Ozempic. You know, there there was a there's somebody who recently on 60 Minutes claimed a, a highly credentialed physician who claimed that the primary cause of obesity is genetic, which I think is is hugely deflating for anybody on a weight loss journey. Right? It it, it foments the victim mindset that oh, I guess I'm overweight or obese. Now, like one in two people are because of my genes, right? But there are some people, and I am not um, disputing what you just said by any stretch of the imagination. There are some people who are genetically big people. Like I spent a little time in Hawaii and I met some people that were just big people. Mm -hmm. Like, I mean, big and burly and like everybody was big. (laughs) 
You know, and they look Samoan. at me like they Samoan big yes, people. Yes, and they are Samoan. Yeah. But you, they look at me like, oh, I would love to pick you up and carry you around like a little baby because <laughs> they're big people. <laughs> yeah, I mean, there there are genetic contributions certainly, but but, okay. but by and large, you know, whether or not somebody is is obese, I mean, this is something that is largely environmental. I mean, this is a this is an environmental problem. So you take Samoans in Hawaii, you expose them to the standard American food diet. And by the way, people people do genetically differ in um not just where they carry their fat, but their their personal fat thresholds, like how fat they can get. And so some people are able to get a lot fatter than than other people, right? But whether or not you're fat or lean, you still might be exposing yourself to metabolic dysfunction, right? Which um, in certain people will hap- happen at a you know at a far lower BMI. We call this normal weight metabolic obesity, um, which is is quite common. About twenty percent of people that are that are normal weight, seemingly healthy, are actually metabolically obese. And then, and then obesity is is on the rise. But again, it's it's a largely it's an interplay between our environment and our genes. You know, the one thing we haven't done is talk about where do you start. I mean, this is a lot of information yeah. about what mm. what we're doing to ourselves and our diets and you know highly processed foods and all that. But I got to be honest, right now I'm kind of thinking, all right, what do I do? Yeah. <laughs> all right. Well, this this Max, this must be now the next step in the strategy. So if the enemy inside, I'll call it that, is the ultra-processed foods that are so abundant in supermarkets. Except, except I'm still, I'm, Max, have you explicitly said why ultra-processed foods are bad for you? Yeah, I can totally go into that. I mean, there. Mm. Yeah, um, I don't think we've heard that yet. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, so so ultra processed foods are foods that you couldn't conceivably make in your own kitchen. Um, they typically lie in the aisles of our supermarket um, aisles, now making up seventy three percent of the of the standard American food supply. The reason why they're they're so pernicious is well, there's a few reasons. One is that they tend to be hyper palatable, so we tend to they tend to push our brain to a bliss point beyond which self-control is nearly impossible. And, you know, if I were a food manufacturer, I would want my foods to be hyper-palatable, right? It's just another way of saying super, super bussin', you know, like super... Mm-hmm. Sprinkle some crack on that. Yeah. <laughs> the, other, the other aspect of them is that they're highly calorie-dense and minimally satiating. So this is for a few reasons. One, they tend to be low in fiber. Two, they tend to be depleted of protein. Protein is the most satiating macronutrient. And your typical junk food... Um, is low in protein. It's high in carbs and fat, right? And the third factor that makes a, an ultra-processed food minimally satiating is that they tend to be dehydrated. So they provide no hydration benefit, which is atypical when looking at whole foods. And the reason for this is that um, moisture in a food impedes its shelf stability. So food manufacturers, they deplete their foods of, of water, protein, and fiber, making them minimally satiating. They're highly refined. They're highly calorie dense. Okay, so I get all that. I get all that. What does it have to do with the brain? Well, the brain, it just like, it sends off like the, the equivalent of the 4th of, of July fireworks when we consume them. And so we tend to overconsume them. There was really elegant research and seminal research published, uh, funded by the NIH, led by Kevin Hall, who's a, a highly credentialed obesity researcher, who found that by the time we've eaten these foods to satiety, we've already overconsumed them. This is not mm-hmm. the case with minimally processed gotcha. foods. So minimally processed foods, the kinds of foods that you would cook conceivably in your own kitchen, right? Single ingredient foods that you even, you know, that you cook yourself and make delicious. Um, when consumed to the same degree of satiety, meaning fullness, meaning to the point that you're ready to get up from the table, you're happy, you're good, 
you're you come in actually effortlessly at a at a calorie deficit. Whereas these ultra processed foods, we overconsume them. So, so we get basically fat. they turn you into pirates of the Caribbean. You, you can eat all you want, drink all you want, but there's you never get satisfied. There you go. So we get fat. They're also nutrient depleted. Uh, uh, we get what daddy gets fat. What's it have to do with my brain health? So, well, I mean, being... They're over- smart, fat people. Yeah. <laughs> so, so being overweight and obese drives inflammation. As I mentioned, inflammation, the brain sits mm. directly downwind of that fire, which is like essentially like a forest fire in the body. So that damages the brain. Being overweight also puts you at higher risk of type 2 diabetes, which increases your risk of Alzheimer's disease between two and four fold. Um, it, you know, having chronically elevated blood sugar literally damages the blood vessels that supply blood nutrients, oxygen to your, to your brain. To the brain. Yeah. So, I mean, there's, there, if these foods are uniquely obesogenic, then right there, that in and of itself is, means that it is a threat to the brain. I love that. Obesogenic. uh, Good word. Obesogenic. Yes. Another new word for us. Um, Uh Food labeling. Nutrients, this, 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 this. The most things that you're going to buy in a supermarket have to have some kind of nutrient labeling. Are we getting everything we need to know on there? And how do we know what part of the product is what we think we're going to get? So, for instance, if it's an orange, we get everything that's in the orange because it's nice, it's fresh. But if it's this synthesized, ultra-processed form, how much of it is left? How can we work that out? Yeah, well, I like to remind people that real foods don't have extensive ingredients lists. They are the foods. Um, They are the ingredients. And so... I think people do need to, one of the best things that people could do uh, second after reducing their their intake of these types of foods is to know how to read food nutrition labels. And so now you can identify easily the added sugar content, which is essentially just empty calories. Um, and when on, I grew up, that wasn't, that wasn't clearly seen on the label. Yeah. It was like hidden. They would have four different kinds of sugar. And then you'd see like sucrose, the regular sugar listed last. And you'd think that was all the sugar, but sugar was masquerading as four other ingredients. So I was a big triumph. I, mean, I remember when nutrition labels decided to localize all the sugar content in one column. Yeah, that was that was hugely helpful. Um, I think people just generally should read uh, ingredients lists um, and and become familiar with with that and all you know many of the more common names by which sugar goes under. Um, I also think that it's important to, uh, you know, opt for foods that are higher in protein. I mean, today it's rare to find people in the Western world who are deficient in protein, but just because we're not walking around deficient doesn't mean that we're consuming optimal amounts. Protein, again, is a very powerful um, anti-obesogen, if you will, because it's so satiating. And so by prioritizing protein, you're not only supporting your musculature, which is incredibly important, like our skeletal muscle is now being thought of as, as a new vital sign, if you will. We're starting to see that frailty really plays a huge role in our um, predisposition to developing age-related chronic disease. And so protein is a really great um, magic, almost uh, macronutrient to, to prioritize in your diet. There's this idea that we're eating that you can eat too much protein. This is actually pretty difficult to do because it is self-limiting. It is so impo- it is so difficult to overconsume, um, and so that's one of the I think more practical because takeaways. You don't you don't even just to put teeth in that. You don't have the urge to binge on it. Right? Correct. You're not going to sit there with a platter of protein of any kind and go through an entire bag of it and then open another bag like we do with with 
uh, uh, with uh, carbohydrate foods, right? Yeah, carbohydrate and fat laden foods. Yeah, it's 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 highly satiating. It also tends to come with it important um, micronutrients. So these are the nutrients that are arming your body with the compounds required to fight off aging, right? Fight off DNA damage, which we all accrue over the course of our lives to give mm-hmm. your cells the cofactors required to generate energy, right? So a lot of people, this is one of the most, in wellness, one of the most common searched um, things is like, how can I gain more energy? People are walking around feeling zonked, fatigued all the time like zombies. Well, it's because we're not, we're, we're all nutrient deficient. 90% of us are walking around deficient in at least one essential nutrient. And our bodies require cofactors to generate ATP energy in our cells. And so, mm-hmm. yeah. So, and that is why I just use meth. <laughs> <laughs> Works for Chuck every time. I'm telling you, man, I could, I could walk to Kansas City from here if I wanted <laughs> So Max, is it a myth that the only way we can supply enough quantity of affordable foods is through the ultra-processed route? Or is Mm, that a fact? mm, Mm. It's a good point. the, the The food processing industry, there is a... There is a benefit to it, of course. It's made food mm-hmm. abundant, widely available, safe. And um, cheaper than ever. If you look at the percentage of the wow. average incomes expenditures on food, it is a fraction yep. of what it was when I was growing up. So it's, it's, it's a lower hit to your total budget than yeah. ever, as low as it's ever been. I think there are people out there right now, this moment, Neil, are feeling the pinch on the uh, food prices. Yeah, making a relative statement here. Yes. <laughs> That's yeah. right. Yeah, yeah. I mean, but there are but there are trade-offs, right? Like, I mean, these these foods might make it easy to and and we and we also need to separate, you know, the notion of calories from nutrition. Like, yeah, they provide cheap calories, but are those calories coming from are those calories nutritious? Are they providing adequate nutrition for us? About 50% are either diabetic or pre-diabetic. So yeah, I mean, we're providing cheap calories to our population, but at what cost? Leaving us saddled with, with chronic illness. And it's also playing a role in soaring healthcare costs. So, mm. yeah, again, okay. it, it, is a, it is a double-edged sword. Um, and so what is biochemical liposuction? <laughs> biochemical liposuction is a term that I heard a um, migraine researcher give to the ketogenic diet. Which is uh, which I thought was very a very compelling way to think about um, ketosis, wow. uh, but I will add that it's not just ketosis that creates this phenomena of biochemical liposuction. Anytime you are in a a calorie deficit, you are essentially um, you are essentially sucking fat out of your own adipocytes and using them for fuel. So it, it you know mm-hmm. as long as you are. Um, you know, burning more energy on a daily basis than you are consuming, you are in a in a type of biochemical liposuction. So what you're saying is wow. the the energy is being drawn from your fat rather than from from uh, carbohydrates flowing through your system. Yeah, because you go into a carbohydrate deficit, and now oh my gosh, I got to get energy from somewhere. Your body gets it from your stored fat. Exactly, your stored so, fat. So, yeah, so I, I'd like that reference. It's it's a very uh, very. Graphic. <laughs> you remember our survival expert, Tim, yeah. Dr. Timogen Tan? Yes. And they dropped him in the middle of Alaska, a Labrador and said, you know, fend for yourself. And his ketosis state. Are we looking here, Max, at 
keeping all the 21st century medical benefits and lifestyles to a certain extent, but go back to a more ancestral way of consuming foodstuffs? Yeah, that, that's my view. And some of the more orthodox in the medical and nutrition space might think that even that is, you know, suggests quackery. But I think that, you know, we're very limited with our, with our tools in the field of nutrition. And nutrition is a very polarized field. And I think we need to, and, and, and nutrition data is incredibly weak. I mean, our dietary guidelines are based on population level, level evidence and you know we have very few long-term randomized controlled trials with you know testing one dietary pattern over another and yet if you spend any time on nutrition Twitter or nutrition Instagram for that matter you'd think that you know that, that these different each of these each of the many different dietary tribes do have their answers right and we're just not privy to them and so I think you do need well, to Max, apply. this was my this, this was my sense when I, I spent time binging on every single a nutrition documentary on Netflix, only to find that I, every single I don't a dozen or so, only to find that there was very little consistency from one to the next. Each one had their own sort of dietary um, uh, preference, mm. and mm. It, it left me wondering whether the person who made the video it worked for them, and they're assuming it's going to work for everybody else, but maybe not because of genetics, because of epigenetics, because of whatever else. Now, you're making a documentary, right? Is it in this space? And am I, am I going to line it up with the others? And what am I going to say after I've seen 12 others and then I come to yours? <laughs> yeah, so I'm working on a documentary. It's called Little Empty Boxes. People can check it out at littleemptyboxes.com. It's not out yet to see, but we have a trailer up. And people can cool. join our... We'll look for it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, and it, but it's not... Uh, I mean, there there is science and research in it, but it's not going to be one of these pedantic, uh, you know, highly prescriptive nutrition docs like like what you see on Netflix. Because the reality is that you know many diets dietary patterns work. There's no such thing as a one size fits all diet. You've got to. This find- was my sense when yeah. I seen yeah. this. It just worked for all these different people, and so I mm-hmm. said, okay, fine. I'll you know I'll pick what works for me. Not yeah. not turn a, turn one person's documentary into a cult. Exactly. Because you know, that's what it kind of felt like. They were saying, if you're not with me, you're against me. And join, a, join us. You know, we are the... the- so is that, is that, Neil, then, going forward, the next generation will want to get ahead of what, what is the foodstuff nutrients. So they're going to go and get the, the genomes analyzed. They're going to find out what they're predisposed to metabolize better, what is better for them? Is this, do you think, Max, the way that we're going to address this, get ahead of our own diet? Bespoke nutrition. I love that. Yeah. That's going to be true no matter what Max says. That's going to (laughs) be... Yeah, it is. We know that's true. Max, that's got to be the solution to this. Personalized nutrition, yeah. But it's, I think it's, yeah. it's, it's in the distance. I don't think that, it's, that this is something that's around the corner. I mean, there are certainly... This is, again, it's socioeconomic. You know, you're going to take out the people who can't afford to go and buy super hyper-fresh, local, and all, they, all their dollar will buy them is ultra-processed. I know one thing that we can do mm-hmm. when you talk about how um, returning to uh, our ancestral way of eating. Yeah. So what we do is we take all the junk food in the supermarket, right? And we make it so that you have to hunt it. 
because the reason why we were skinny back in the days is because we had to chase our food. And that's why you had to expend a great deal of energy in order to eat. I'm so not now, chasing down my potato chips. I'm sorry. You got to chase your potato gonna... chips. You got to hunt those potato <laughs> chips, man. So you're going to put them in a... So what we're going to do is electric carts, right? right? Full of food that we have to chase around the aisles you gotta in the chase supermarket. Around. So <laughs> you say, there they go. There go the potato chips. And then you just got to start running uh, uh, to get your chips. Potato chips Blue escaping light on chips aisle eight. Blue light chips in aisle four. Exactly. Right. Yeah. We need yeah. sharp work for the potato chips. <laughs> we, we, we start forming teams to work together. <laughs> <laughs> oh dear that is one solution We've, it's time to end the show right now before that gets further out of hand so Max it's been a delight to have you on it's great to know that folks like you are running around trying to make make this world a, a healthier place because mm. without those forces operating uh, you know I, I, I don't I don't know why we're even alive at all you know <sighs> we're not for the reminders of what we should or should be doing with our body and our minds so thank you for being a force of good in this world. Thank you, Neil. It means a lot coming from you. All right, and, yeah. And, yeah. And so, uh, Chuck, good to have you, Gary. Oh, as oh, always. You, All right. We've just concluded another Star Talk special edition. This one on your food and your brain and your brain on food. Neil deGrasse Tyson here, as always, bidding you to keep looking up. 